Section 17 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 3. Bolivia. Chapter 4. Bolivia Independent. After his great victory at Ayacucho, Sucre advanced rapidly to Cusco, and thence into the Titicaca Basin. By February he had reached Oruro in what is now central Bolivia, and Upper Peru rose as one man to welcome the deliverer. The next step was to decide upon the future government. For thirty years before the beginning of the revolution, this country had been part of the viceroyalty of Buenos Aires, and when the city on the plate had expelled its Spanish rulers, the patriots there had expected that the Upper Peru would continue to be connected with the new nation. Although in the early years of the war these provinces sent delegates to congresses which assembled in the Argentine cities, the Creoles of the plateau never showed any anxiety to incorporate their country with the Argentine, and the successes of the Spanish generals virtually renewed Bolivia's ancient connection with Lima. Now that the Spaniards were expelled, the Bolivian Creoles were no more willing to unite with Lower Peru than with Buenos Aires, and Bolivar encouraged this sentiment. The ambitious and lucky soldier had formed the Napoleonic conception of making himself supreme dictator of a confederation of small states, each of which was to be ruled by a subordinate dictator named from among his creatures. To organize Upper Peru into a separate country, with Sucre at its head, would be a long step in this direction. Bolivar himself was president of the Confederation of Venezuela, New Granada, and Ecuador, as well as dictator of Lower Peru, and at the head of a victorious army of Colombians. Argentina's influence was nullified by civil war. Chile's strength was as yet unsuspected. For the moment, Bolivar was supreme in South America. At his dictation, Peru and Buenos Aires promulgated decrees leaving to the provinces of Upper Peru the right, quote, to decide freely and spontaneously as to what form of government would be most conducive to their prosperity and good government, end quote. When Bolivar himself reached the country, he was received in a delirium of joy and gratitude, and the enthusiastic Bolivians acclaimed him father of their country. In a literal sense, he deserved the title, for his intervention had conferred independence on Bolivia, and his decrees now fixed her boundaries. In general, he followed the ancient limits of the Audiencia of Charcas. Peru retained the seacoast directly to the west, as well as all the Titicacan Basin north and west of the lake, compelling Bolivian commerce to pass through foreign territory in order to reach the ocean. Far to the south, Bolivia was conceded a little ribbon of coast, but the route thither lay over the bleak and barren Puna, and was too long to be of any practical service. On the 11th of August, 1825, official proclamation was made that the new republic had begun its existence, taking the name Bolivia, in honor of the liberator. Congress said in the Act of Independence that, quote, Upper Peru is the altar upon which the first blood was shed for liberty, and the land where the last tyrant perished. The barbarous burning of more than a hundred villages, the destruction of towns, the scaffolds raised everywhere for the partisans of liberty, the blood of thousands of victims that would make even caribs shudder, the taxes and exactions as arbitrary as inhuman, the insecurity of property, life, and of honor itself, an atrocious and merciless inquisitorial system, 
all have not been able to extinguish the sacred fire of liberty and the just hatred of Spanish power. End quote. Early in the following year, Bolivar presented a constitution all ready for the approval of Congress. Written in his own hand, it stands a curious proof of his political ideas. After laying down the somewhat vague principle that liberty is a mere island which the waves of tyranny and anarchy alternately threaten to engulf, and establishing a legislative system too complicated to be workable, he shows the cloven hoof by providing for a president elected for life and possessing the right to nominate a successor. Sucre was made the president as a matter of course, but hardly had he begun his regular government when troubles broke out. His own character, the internal conditions of Bolivia, and the international jealousies felt against him as the friend and representative of Bolivar combined to make his position untenable. A general of the first order, a statesman of enlightened ideas, and a single-minded and unselfish patriot, Sucre would not deign to impose himself by force of arms on a reluctant people, nor make undignified compromises with the turbulent caudillos. He had accepted the presidency only after it had been repeatedly pressed upon him by the Bolivian Congress, and though he was probably influenced by his loyal wish to aid Bolivar in the latter's scheme of uniting all Spanish America under a strong semi-monarchical government, he was unselfishly anxious to restore peace and order. The heterogeneous population of about a million who lived upon the plateau was, however, demoralized by the terrible experiences through which it had passed in the previous fifteen years. Three-fourths were Indian, a stoical, docile race which would not make much trouble, but which was divided into two nations, speaking different languages and possessing little capacity for organization. The few whites and the more numerous people of mixed blood were the dominating elements, and these had been trained to lawlessness and ferocity by the long war. Sucre vainly tried to replace anarchy by some semblance of orderly government. The revenues of the country had fallen from the two millions annually of colonial times to almost nothing. His attempt to substitute a rational system of direct taxation for the countless Spanish imposts failed. Money to pay the Colombian troops could not be raised, and the mercenaries became mutinous. At the same time, symptoms of rebellion appeared among the Bolivian caudillos. Troubles in Colombia and Venezuela had forced Bolivar to retire from Peru, and the troops he left behind almost immediately mutinied, and Santa Cruz pushed himself to the head of affairs at Lima. The Bolivarian constitution of Peru was overthrown, and Santa Cruz and Gamarra advanced upon Bolivia to expel Sucre. The latter's Colombian troops mutinied, and bands of insurrectionists rose in various parts of the country to aid the Peruvian invaders, while Argentina and Chile plainly showed their desire for Sucre's overthrow. On the 28th of July, 1828, a little more than three years after his triumphant entry into Bolivia, Sucre made a treaty with the leader of the Peruvian army, agreeing to withdraw from Bolivia with all the natives of Colombia. General Santa Cruz was named president, and the Peruvians occupied many of the Bolivian provinces for several months, only to withdraw when it became evident that their continued presence would surely provoke a universal uprising. Santa Cruz soon triumphed over all opposition and established himself as master of the country. 
The new President was a man whose general intelligence and ability and knowledge of diplomacy, law, and economics gave the country a successful and rational government. Though he abandoned Sucre's premature attempt to reform the taxing system, he energetically applied and improved the old imposts, and soon brought some order out of the financial chaos. His army was the best organized, disciplined, and equipped in South America. He also tried to attract European immigration and to improve agricultural, commercial, and social conditions and methods. The difficulties of communication and the conservative and industrially unenergetic character of the population, however, prevented any rapid development. Peru was distracted by civil commotions, and Santa Cruz pressed hard on the northern country. He probably could have forced the cession of the adjacent seacoast to the inestimable and lasting benefit of Bolivia, but his ambition led him farther. Appealed to for help by one of the rival Peruvian factions, he gave it upon the condition that the country should be divided, the two parts uniting with Bolivia in a confederation, of which he was to be the supreme head. In 1835 he invaded Peru and made himself master of the country. The creation of the Peru-Bolivian Confederation was an especial menace to Chile and the Argentine. The latter country, still a prey to the most lamentable civil disorders, was in no position to undertake any effective intervention, but Chile's already strong and well-established government determined to restore the balance of power. Pretexts for war were soon found, and the more solid texture of Chile's social and political organization, the energy of her people bred in cold regions, and her command of the sea quickly made themselves felt. The first expedition sent to Arequipa in 1837 was compelled to retire by an army which Santa Cruz dispatched down the Cordillera from La Paz. The factions in Peru, however, rose, and in the following year Chile renewed the war. On the 20th of January 1839, with the aid of the Peruvian auxiliaries, the Chileans overwhelmingly defeated an army of Bolivians and Peruvians under Santa Cruz at the Battle of Yungay. The fragility of the foundations upon which Santa Cruz had rested his system was now apparent. The Peru-Bolivian Confederation disappeared from the map. Peru re-established her independent existence with her old boundaries. Santa Cruz's enemies in Bolivia rose in rebellion, and he fell without a struggle. As a matter of fact, the ten years of his more or less orderly government had not changed the character of the Bolivian Creoles and mixed bloods. His government had been military, reactionary, and a mere makeshift. The Indians still occupied their inferior position. The lower classes regarded the ruling coteries as self-seeking aristocrats, a dull discontent fermented among the whole population, and the ambitious chieftains found little difficulty in seducing the soldiery. Bolivia, definitely cut off from the Pacific, helpless to defend her interests in the plains surrounding the plateau, unable to attract the fertilizing and civilizing currents of commerce and immigration, entered upon an epoch of civil war, pronunciamentos, and dictatorships which lasted nearly half a century. A recital of the literally countless armed risings and of the various individuals who exercised or claimed to exercise supreme power would throw little light on the progress of the country. 
foreign commerce and domestic industry were so small that the government was always poor and unable to meet its expenses peru's possession of the seaports held bolivian commerce at her mercy and the military and naval power of chile was a continental menace either of bolivia's larger neighbours could easily bring on a revolution by opportune aid to ambitious factions the turbulence of the creole military classes was not restrained by any powerful and intelligent commercial and industrial population in the midst of the fighting which followed the overthrow of santa cruz a liberal constitution was proclaimed which attempted to take from the executive his preponderance in the government negro slavery was abolished and the movement was altogether in the direction of democracy and against the property-holding classes in eighteen forty general bolivian overcame all his rivals and gained supreme power in the following year the dictator of peru taking advantage of the continual disputes over question of transit through peruvian territory and thinking that in bolivia's enfeebled condition she would not be able to resist incorporation led a large army over the border and occupied the province of la paz but the bolivians rallied around bolivian and defeated the peruvians in the battle of ingavi near the end of eighteen forty one a victory which definitely assured the independence of bolivia bolivian had risen to power by brute military force and crushed out the feeble attempt at popular government made after the fall of santa cruz despotic irritable and ambitious he had not the wide knowledge or administrative capacity of santa cruz and he gave the country a much worse government the pride of the turbulent half-breeds was roused by the victory over the peruvians and conspiracies and insurrections occurred more frequently bolivian ordered the liberal constitution of eighteen thirty nine to be repealed and the preponderance of the executive in the governmental system was restored by the constitution of eighteen forty three he ruled until eighteen forty eight but the partisans of santa cruz grew bolder and bolder in spite of the president's efforts to surround himself with officials of talent and intelligence the power of the government decreased the irrational and artificial boundaries given to bolivia by bolivar continued to involve her in disputes with peru and in eighteen forty seven the imposition of practically prohibitive duties nearly brought on war bolivian assembled an army but castilla the peruvian president found means to foment an insurrection and the bolivian president was soon engaged in a desperate conflict with the very men whom he had expected to lead against the foreign enemy successful at first in his operations one mutiny was suppressed only to be followed by others more formidable and he finally gave it up in disgust and retired to exile a year of confused struggling followed and at last general belsou succeeded in establishing himself as dictator of low origin and uneducated passionate and violent the new ruler owed his elevation to his popularity with the common soldiery and the lowest classes of the population his so-called policy of conciliation amounted in fact to permitting the guerilla bands to do as they pleased rapine robbery and riot became almost the nominal condition of the country while the better elements never ceased their conspiracies dr linares a man of probity and learning though stubborn and uncompromising persisted untiring in his efforts to rid the country of the dictator 
For seven years, however, Bersu maintained himself, while Bolivia fell lower and lower into the pit of anarchy, disgraced abroad by the actions of an ignorant tyrant who broke treaties, refused to listen to the protests of foreign ministers, and finally bundled them all out of the country, secure that on his mountain-tops no army could reach him to avenge the insult. The British Foreign Office literally wiped Bolivia from the map, declaring that she could no longer be recognized as a civilized nation. At last the dictator tired of his place and voluntarily resigned it, leaving as his successor a bastard son-in-law named Cordova. The latter suppressed nine revolutionary movements in three years, before he was at last overthrown by the indefatigable Linares. The new dictator started in with the good wishes of the respectable elements, and earnestly tried to raise his country from the abyss into which she had fallen. But the nation had been so thoroughly demoralized that there was no foundation to build upon. The public offices were filled by political favorites, but when he threw them out and tried to put honest and competent men in their places, he lost the goodwill of the office-holding class. He tried to reform the army, and dismissed the useless swarm of officers without commands, but this gained him the enmity of the military. The very ministers whom he had selected to aid him in putting reforms in effect plotted against him, and it was a conspiracy led by Fernandez, the member of his cabinet, in whom he placed his greatest confidence, that brought about his fall after he had ruled three stormy and anxious years. A period of frightful confusion, known as the presidency of General Acha, ensued. The chiefs fought among themselves with such ferocity that in Chile and Peru the partition of Bolivia was seriously discussed. Finally, at the end of 1864, a remarkable man came to the front out of the tangle. This was the celebrated dictator Melgarejo, who frankly abandoned all pretense of governing by any sanction except that of brute force and terror. He kept up a great army of spies, and the conspiracies which they reported were ruthlessly crushed by the well-paid ruffians who composed his army, and blindly obeyed his capricious commands. One day the dictator, drunk as was his habit, called the guard and ordered them to jump out of the windows in order to show a visiting foreigner the superior discipline of the Bolivian soldier. Several had broken their arms or legs, but he did not even look to see and continued his demonstration by ordering his aide-de-camp to quote-unquote lie dead like a poodle-dog taxes were arbitrarily levied peaceable citizens were exiled and shot around him circulated a crowd of parasitic functionaries but in spite of his extravagances and cruelties melgarejo gave some solidity and consistence to the governmental structure the production of silver had been declining until about eighteen fifty but at the beginning of Melgarejo's administration had again reached ten millions annually, and thereafter rapidly increased with the encouragement given by him to the investment of foreign capital. Money was freely spent on public works, and the Moyendo Railroad, extending to the head of Lake Titicaca, dates from this time. It is the principal route for Bolivia's foreign commerce, though it does not touch Bolivian territory. The isolated desert region on the coast began to be exploited, and the guano, nitrate, copper, and silver found there vastly increased the country's revenues, although a considerable foreign debt was incurred. 
Melgarejo's enemies succeeded in overthrowing him in 1871, and their leader, General Morales, succeeded to the supreme power. There followed some relaxation of the system of personal tyranny, but in the main the form of the administration changed little, either under Morales or his immediate successors. The first named was able to negotiate a European loan to be employed in the building of railways, and in fact one was constructed running from Antofagasta on the nitrate coast over the Cordillera and across the Puna tableland to the centre of the country at Oruro. Heavy gradients, the unproductive character of the region along the line, and its length have prevented its furnishing the cheap and practical outlet to the sea which had been hoped for. Insurrections continued to break out from time to time, and in 1876 General Daza usurped supreme power. His rule lasted until the Chilean War of 1879, but the first decisive defeat was the signal for his fall. Narciso Campero became president, and the Bolivian nation, hopeless of recovering its coast provinces by force of arms, began the task of readjusting itself to the new conditions. The constitution was rewritten in its present form, and a succession of presidents have since ruled the country in a peace and security which forms a happy contrast with the anarchy which preceded Melgarejo's advent. The production of silver rapidly increased, reaching $15 million in 1885, when Pacheco was president, and growing to $20 million in 1888, with Arce in the executive chair. Potosí still yields 3 million ounces per annum, and the great Huanchaca mines far surpass Potosí, making Bolivia the third silver-producing country in the world. But her great resources can never be profitably utilized until a practical outlet to the sea has been found. On the Pacific she has been absolutely shut in since the Chilean War, Peru controlling the northern fourth of the coast which separates her from the ocean, and Chile the remainder. Bolivia is without a seaport, though she retains a hope of receiving compensation for the loss of her nitrate territory in the cession of one such outlet, when Chile and Peru are able to come to an agreement about the province of Arica. But the explorations of Heath on the upper tributaries of the Madeira resulted in discoveries which may ultimately enable Bolivia to utilize the magnificent fertile plain lying just at the foot of the tableland, but so far well nigh as inaccessible as the South Pole. Broad and navigable rivers meander through this vast region, needing only the construction of a railway around the Madeira Rapids to communicate with the Amazon and the Atlantic. Since the days of the Jesuit missionaries, the Mojos Indians in the prairies on the Mamoré north of Santa Cruz have retained a measure of civilization, breeding cattle and keeping up a connection with the Creoles at Santa Cruz. Lately the latter have pressed on into the rubber regions on the lower Mamoré, and even crossed into the valley of the Beni, and founded the town of Riveralta, where the Orton joins the Beni. From La Paz daring men painfully made their way down the roadless gorges of the great Cordillera, and reached navigable water, where the Beni emerges from the mountains. Thence to Riveralta, the way was comparatively easy, and little steamboats now ply these waters. This region is permanently inhabitable by civilized men, but to the northeast the country drops off into swampy plains drained by the Acre, a tributary of the sluggish Purus. 
Up the latter river the Brazilian rubber hunters had come from Manaos, and found the banks of the Acre unprecedentedly rich in the finest gum. Thousands poured into the territory, and by the early nineties it was furnishing a large percentage of the world's supply. Though the Bolivian boundary had long been believed to cross the Acre near the ninth degree, the Brazilian rubber gatherers did not hesitate to enter an entirely unoccupied territory and even penetrated as far south as the twelfth degree in a region undisputably Bolivian. The authorities at La Paz attempted to assert their political control, but since it was well-nigh impossible to get troops into the country except by way of the Atlantic, the rubber gatherers defied them. The Brazilian government intervened to protect the interests of its citizens. President Pando headed an expedition in 1902 which was met at the borders of the Acre Valley, and after some fighting with the insurgent Brazilians, which seemed likely to bring on a war between the two powers, a treaty was agreed, upon which Brazil takes the territory, paying a money indemnity, agreeing to build the railroad round the Madeira Falls, and ceding a port on the Paraguay. Internally, the condition of Bolivia has in the main been quiet since the Chilean War, and the contest between clericalism and radicalism has lost much of its bitterness. General Camacho led an unsuccessful insurrection in 1890, and afterwards fled to Valparaiso. Three years later he planned another insurrection, and the government had great difficulty in obtaining arms and money for operations against him, Chileans finally furnished rifles and a loan, and shortly afterwards a treaty was negotiated by which Bolivia abandoned its alliance with Peru and came under Chilean influence. Peru resented this, and the following year her restrictions on Bolivian commerce nearly brought the two countries to blows. The crisis, however, passed, and Bolivia has returned to the policy of avoiding entangling alliances while pressing Brazil, Chile, or Peru to give her outlets to the ocean. In 1896, Alonso, leader of the conservatives, and that energetic general and explorer, José Manuel Pando, chief of the liberals, contested the presidential election. In this contest, the geographical jealousies which exist between northern and southern Bolivia played a considerable role. Alonso was successful and served as president during three years, but early in 1899 Pando began warlike operations, and in April overthrew Alonso in a decisive battle. Under his vigorous administration the country has been quiet, the plain of the Madeira has been opened up to settlement, and the international position of the government is now vastly improved. End of section 17